we've been going through uh, the church's statement of faith. And this week we're on point number seven, and which is the church. Now, uh, by way of explanation, we're gonna we're gonna break this point up into two sermons. So this is part one, and we're gonna look at you know what is the church and what does the church do. And in the statement, there's also a section about communion and baptism. And so Joe's gonna give a whole sermon to that next week, mostly because it would just be too much. Uh, to do in one sermon, even though I am really good at talking for long periods of time. Uh, amen. Hallelujah. All right, I see that hand. Um, but yeah, so we're going to talk about the church, and, and it's really important what we believe about the church. Um, it affects everything we do. It affects our lives. It affects how we do church. It, it affects who the leaders of the church are. It affects who's, who's in the church. And, and so I want to start, start us off today by thinking if someone came up to you and asked you, what is the church, uh, what would you say? Would you, would you start by saying, well, it's the church that we're in on Sunday? Or would you start by saying it's the people in that building? Or would you just be really confused and you'd find your hands coming together to show church, people the church, the steeple, and all the people? <laughs> all those subconscious uh, Sunday school memories. <laughs> But so today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to say, what is the church? What does the Bible say the church is? And we're going to look at it in two forms. Um, if you look at your, at your uh, bullets and you'll see this, we're going to look at the true church, or in some places you'll hear it called the universal church, and then we're going to talk about the local church. And, uh, and I'm really excited. I, I actually really enjoy uh, this area of theology. It's called ecclesiology. We always have to make bigger words more difficult. Um, but I, I was really excited when Joe said that I'm up for this one. Um, but we're just going to see what does the Bible say about it. So we're going to be in two places. I know I don't usually do this, but we're going to be in two places. We're going to be in Ephesians for the first half and then Hebrews for the second half. Um, but first, I want to start off by reading what the statement of faith says we believe about the church. It says this, We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. And so you can see within there that there's a breakdown. It's talking about the true church, the universal church, and the local church. So turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to learn what the Bible says about the true church. Ephesians chapter 2, and then verses, we'll be in verses 13 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. And what we're going to see here is what the Bible says about the universal or the true church, I'll be using those terms interchangeably, um, is that the true church is one unified body through the cross of Christ. And let me reread that part of the statement. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. So we're going to see one unified body and that unity comes through the creation of that body comes through Jesus' death on the cross. Let me read uh, Ephesians 
chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and we'll go through and work through it verse by verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple, a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now in this first section, we're going to see the unity through Christ, and we're going to look um, at verses 13 to 17 first, and what I want you to see is we're going to go verse by verse because in these verses, the theme of unity through Christ is repeated again and again and again, and so I want us to see the repetition of these same themes because when we read our Bibles, one of the first things we should look for is repetition. Because repetition means importance, okay? All of you parents out there, when you repeat something, and, and I know everybody in here, their kids do it the first time, I know, uh, but you repeat it over again so that they know it's important, so they know to do it, right? And sometimes you just have to keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. God is the same way with us. He gives us a lot of repetition so that it gets to us, so that we understand that this is important. So I want you to see how these themes are weaved into each verse here. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he starts off in Christ. Again, the focal point, the, the most important part of this is that it's through Christ, through his death on the cross, that it's in Christ that we are brought into the people of God. And then it says, you who are once far off have been brought near. So the idea of gathering. Okay, he's talking about Gentiles here. That at one time they were far off from God, but, but God has brought them near. He has gathered them into one place. And how is this done? By the blood of Christ. So again, we see that the gathering, the, the collection, is through Jesus. And that we have unity, we have oneness through Jesus' death on the cross. The reason it says the blood of Christ there, that is, that is a euphemism, a nice way to talk about the cross because you'll remember that you did not talk about the cross in polite company. And so there were euphemisms like this to say something in sort of a nicer way. And so that's what that's referring to there. And so when we're reunited with God through the cross, we're united with each other. When our relationship with God is fixed through belief in Jesus and his death on the cross, that's when we're gathered together. The idea of these, all these people coming into one place. 
through the cross of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he is our peace. So that there's unity where there wasn't unity. Okay, other places in the Bible, um, especially Paul talks about how before we believed in Christ, we were enemies of God. We weren't just neutral to him. We were against him. We were rebels. And so because we rebel, we need peace to be made to end the rebellion. And he is our peace. Peace comes through Christ. Peace with God and peace with one another. As we're brought into one body, peace is made within the body. And so there's a vertical relationship where we have peace with God, but there's also the horizontal that when we are made into new creations through Christ, that we are now able to have good relations with other people. So again, that unity through Christ made both one. So the idea is of two being brought into one. Okay, we get this from the idea of it in a Jewish mind. Okay, there are Jews and there are non-Jews. Like that's how the world is. It's us and everybody else, okay? Um, and so when he's talking about both being made one, he's talking about Jewish people and he's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews coming together in one body. Okay, so the church crosses ethnic lines. The church crosses economic divisions. So in everywhere where our differences try to separate us or people try to use our differences to separate us, we need to come together. We need to be unified because Christ died for one people. He died for one church. Okay, and it's bringing all those people together. And he did this by, and here's a good metaphor here, because he had broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And when I read this, my, my thoughts first went to the Berlin Wall. Okay, I was not alive for a lot of that time, so I, I rely on the television and the internet for this. Um, but those of you who remember a time when there was a wall literally dividing a city and dividing a country, and in some ways dividing the world into the east and the west, okay? And, and the idea of tearing down that wall because it represented separation and wanting there to be peace in the world, right? And that's the picture here is this wall that divides us, the wall that, that, that allows sin to keep us apart and to keep us angry at each other. And Jesus broke down that wall. He tore down the wall of hostility. And how did he do it? Look, look right there, in his flesh. Peace does not come by just following the rules. Peace must come through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot have peace with each other or peace with God without Jesus dying on a cross. Because he has to break down the hostility. He has to bring us and make us one people of God. Keep moving on. Verse 15. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, by fulfilling all righteousness, by fulfilling all of God's commands. That's how he did it. And so that 
he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So creating, it's active. He made one people of God. And again, using the metaphor of, of two groups. And again, that's the Jewish, Jewish identity and the Gentile identity. Now they have a different identity in, as the people of God, as the one people of God. And again, how did he do this? In himself, through Christ, through his death, through his life, death, and resurrection, he makes the church. And he did this making peace. When he did this, he made peace. Now, in almost every translation of the Bible into different languages that I've read, making peace is always an active, okay? It's in the original Greek. It's an active. It's a compound word just like our word uh, peacemaker. That, that's, it, it carries into other languages um, that I've read. And the idea is that peace must be made. It's not something that just happens. It just doesn't. And so we see this perfectly in Jesus, who had to die. His act of going to the cross made peace. And so as we make peace, we have to make it. We have to actively create peace where there was hostility. And so as we are unified, we need to follow the example of Christ, who made peace with us and God as we make peace with one another and stay that unified body. Let's go on to verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Again, the, the idea of reconciliation of peace. We needed peace. We were not at peace. We were rebels against the living God of the universe. All of us, all of us were in rebellion against God. And when he reconciled, he brought us into, not just into a body, but one body. The emphasis there on the one, that this is one body of Christ, one people of God, one unified people of God. And again, see the repetition. How does he do it? Look at your Bible. Through the cross keeps bringing us back to the cross, back to Jesus. Again, the, just the, the mere repetition shows us how important this is for our identity as the people of God. And through the cross, he killed the hostility. So the positive, making peace, but also the negative, killing the hostility. And again, active. And here, this is God coming into human history and destroying discord and disunity and the problems and the rebellion and he's making peace he's allowing there to be a relationship where there was fighting where there was rebellion that the god that we rebel against every day because of jesus we can be at peace and have a relationship with that god and it must be through the cross it is only through the cross. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And what I want us to see here is, is the far off and the near. The far off is the Gentiles. The near is the Jews. 
So again, we see that it's all people. Okay? I, I've said this before, but, but when you have this, it's, a, it's called a mirrorism. So we say, I've been working day and night. That means all the time, right? So when it's the far off ones and the near ones, that's everybody. And so he's helping us understand by, by giving us a word picture to think of, okay, there's these people that are here and they're a little closer. And then you got these people that are all out there, but they're all coming into one place. It's helping us, giving us a picture, a real tangible picture of what the church, the people of God should look like. And that that unity comes through Christ. A couple things as, as we go here that I'm going to highlight that, that I've, I've been highlighting. Um, but the, the reconciliation is for Jews and Gentiles. It's for everybody. It's for all types of people. It's for people of, of different ethnicities, of different backgrounds, of different social statuses. All of that. All people who turn in faith, believing, believing in Christ's death and resurrection, are brought into this people. It's through the cross. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase in, in our denomination's history that says, all believers but only believers, and that we must come through Jesus to be brought into this people. And so we, we need to have unity with each other. Because as God has brought us together, God has given us a new identity as a people of God, and so we need to come together as the people of God. We need to make peace. We need to kill hostility, just as Christ did on the cross. And how, how are we brought in? Look at verse 18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father, that we are united with the people of God by the Spirit. Look at, um, look at our statement there at the bottom of your sheet. They are united by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. It's a Trinitarian um, reality. And that through the Spirit that we learned about last week, we are brought in to God's people. By the power of the Spirit, we are brought in. Now, I want us to see a little more of this new identity. Okay, because when we come to believe in Christ, we are new people. Okay, if, anyone is in new, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. And Paul helps us even more understand this new identity. Okay, we're new people when we're brought into the church. Because okay, it, it, it's by faith, it's by being saved that we're brought in to the true church, and so it's a new identity. We're new people. Look at verses 19 to 22 with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the three metaphors, one is, is the, the idea of citizenship. Okay, Especially if you go over to another country, they may ask you, what is your nationality? Okay, That's a part of who you are, getting to know you. Hey, I'm an American, or I'm a Brit, or, or I'm an Australian, or, or whatever. Um, that's a part of who you are and how you identify yourself. But 
Paul says when we're brought into the church, it's like we have a new nationality. Because we, we are so changed, we have a new identity, that we're a part of God's kingdom. That we're a part of God's people with the idea of God's people as his nation, his country. And so our identity changes. Who we are changes. We're no longer American or Nigerian or Indonesian, but we're Christian. We're belonging to Christ and his kingdom. Next, we see the next metaphor is, is that of members of the household of God. And, and the idea there is simply family. We're part of God's family. I mean, that, this is a way that we identify ourselves all the time. Okay? I mean, especially in, in the States, you know, we use last names. So, which Rick are you talking about? Always a good question at our church here. Um, well, we say, you know, Rick Rosetto or Rick Vlock or whatever Ricks might come in, you know. Uh, which Jim, which Joe, which Mary Lou? Well, there's only one Mary Lou, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Mary Lou. That was awful of me. Now we need to be unified and not allow hostility. It's whoever caught my eye, so I apologize for that. Um, but you get the idea that as a family, that's a part of our identity. That's very much who we are. And that's, that's who God made us to be. And um, it changes everything about us. And then the third one is temple. That we are made into God's temple. That as that signified presence of God, that we are now the presence of God in the world. That our identity has changed so much that we represent God in this world. That's a far cry from what we used to be. It's a far cry from being the rebel that we once were. From leading a rebellion to representing the living God on earth. And that temple, not just any temple, but that temple has Christ as its cornerstone, as the most important part of the building. Okay, go back to the, go back to the statement. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Okay, that's how Paul uses language elsewhere. But the idea is the same. Okay, you don't have much of a body without a head. In the same way, you don't have much of a building without a cornerstone. In the same way, you don't have a church without Jesus. He is the leader of our church. Every leader in the church submits themselves to the leadership of Christ. Okay? Peter talks about the elders being under shepherds of Christ, the chief shepherd. And so this is not just any group of people. This group of people, the church, the true church, the universal church, has as its leader, Jesus Christ. That makes it different from every other organization on the planet. Now, let's take some time to look at the local church. And 
I think that today in America, it's easier to talk about the universal church. Um, I think sometimes we have trouble in thinking about what place does the local church have within the true church. Okay, we don't want to show favoritism to any specific local congregation, and that's a good motive. But at the same time, we need to, we need to be very proud of, of our local church. And it's hard because we don't want to appear boastful. We don't want to appear prideful. But at the same time, God wants local churches. Okay? And so our theology needs to be robust enough to say, yes, all believers but only believers. And at the same time, it's okay that we have our local church here. It's okay that this church is not the same as the church down the road. It's okay. Um, and our theology needs to reflect that. And, and I hope today for you to see that in the Bible, not just from me. Um, you know, that wasn't the end of the sermon. We're going to keep going. Um, but I want us to see from the Bible. So turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, near the end of your Bible. Um, don't go to the Old Testament for Hebrews. It's a little confusing, but near the end of your Bible, uh, chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. And while you're going there, I want to read what um, our statement says about the local church. It says, The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. So the local church is important because it is the way that the true church is shown, okay? The true church is manifest in local churches. It's sort of, a, sort of a different way to say it, which you commonly see in statements of faith, but that the local church shows people, shows people what the true church is. It's a visual thing that we can see, that we can be in, be a part of, um, that, that's tangible. Now, because it's a manifestation of the local church, membership should be composed only of believers. So to be a member of this church, you have to be a believer in Jesus. Okay? Because how we act as a local church shows people a picture of the true church. And so, so that we do not ruin the name of the true church, we need to make sure that our members are believers. If you, if you become a member, you sit down with the elders and you tell us your story, how you came to Christ. Now, anyone can come. We, are, we try to be as welcoming as possible. Um, we love visitors. We love people who don't yet believe in Jesus. But to be a member, you need to believe in Jesus because we're showing the world what the church should be. The other reason that this is put into our statement is, is because of the history of our denomination. Uh, many American denominations, if you study um, denominational history, especially in the States, um, you will see that many denominations were founded around um, ethnic groups. Uh, so you have ones like... Um, the Evangelical Reformed Church is, is a German church 
um, that came over uh, in the 1800s with the German immigrants. And, 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 and so, you know, your background of your Presbyterians, they're Scottish, uh, you're Dutch Reformed. I think they come from the Dutch. I'm not sure, um, but thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you for that chuckle. Uh, but, but you see, that's how, that's how a lot of denominations in America work. They're around ethnic and immigrants coming because they all spoke the same language, so they all stayed in church together. Okay? So the history of the free church is Scandinavian in its roots. Okay? So uh, the Norwegians, Norwegians and the Danes and the Finns and the Swedish, I think I got everybody, uh, came together in America and founded the Evangelical Free Church. Um, so, but part of that is in their history, the countries that they came from had state churches. Okay? So if you lived in a certain town, that was your religion or your tradition, okay? especially if you're in Europe. So um, if you were in Norway, you were probably Lutheran for example, and you were a member in these churches just because you lived down the road from the church. Now, this can cause problems, okay? There's some discipline problems. There are people who don't really believe in Jesus, but they're members of the church, and so they're making decisions for the church, and it's hard to be a good church member if you don't believe in Jesus, or if you just show up because it's a way to have a leadership position in your community. Some people, we have record of that happening. So one of the reasons it's put in is because of that history, that you aren't a believer in Jesus just because you come into the church building or just because you live in Chillicothe and not Sparland or whatever. Um, but so, so that's put in there to remind us that this is, the true church is made up of believers, and so members... People who are then in leadership positions at church should be believers. Okay, there, there are standards for that. Okay, and they're very open standards, but they're still standards. And so that's why they're, they're in here. So let's, let's go with uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Excuse me. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I want to break this down into, into two sections. First of all, looking at what should the church do. And I got two verbs for you. Stir up and encourage. Okay, those are the two things that, that the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, says that, that we should do. We should consider how to stir up one another, how to agitate one another, how to, in, in other translations, spur on one another, the picture of someone on a horse with spurs, okay, to get you going, to motivate you, okay? Why? Not just to agitate other people, okay? We don't just agitate for the sake of agitation. Maybe some of us do, but I've tried to stop. Um, but why? There's a purpose, there's a purpose that we spur one another. It's a purpose that we stir up one another for love and good works. That we, that we agitate one another to live the life that God has called us to live. That we stir up, that we mix it up with one another so that we can do the things 
that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So, things like sharing the gospel with our neighbor, things like helping people who need help, things like coming together as a family when there is pain and tragedy. That's what we stir one another up to do. We're an active body. We do things. We have a mission. We don't just come here because we like each other and we really like singing. Okay? And, and Joe's a good speaker, but that's not, that's not all of why we come here. We don't just come here for that. Because the sermon and the singing and the coming together and the fellowship are to aid us in our mission. Because we can do our mission better with one another. God has given us each other so that we can do what he wants us to do. And we need the gifts of everyone here. Everyone here has gifts that someone else does not have. All of you people who can fix things, I am so glad you are here. I'm really good at reading books. That's about it, okay? But we need different people. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. And the mission is too big. We need a community. We need fellow workers. We need workers who do different things. We need nursery workers. We need Sunday school teachers. We need Awana Games leaders. We need youth leaders. We need men's breakfast guys who cook scrambled eggs. I mean, just, we need all of that. Because we have a mission. We have a mission of love and good works. That's, that's the reason we picked that song, Oh Church Arise, and the idea of, of an army, the, mil, the, the military metaphor of having a mission. And that's what we need to be. We come together, we enjoy one another's company, and that's awesome. And, that, and, and that's going to be in, in the second part here. But we encourage one another to do something to be bigger than just us on our own, to be a community that marches out into the bigger community and does love and good works. Secondly, the local church is called to encourage one another. We are called to support one another through the storms of life. We are so blessed that when bad things happen, we have one another. We have people to cry with, people to hug when we just need a hug. Okay? That, that's the church. To motivate and encourage one another. You know, I think of, reading this here made me think of our weight loss challenge. For those of you who don't know, me, Joe, and some others are doing a weight loss challenge. And if, and if I didn't have somebody else reading how much weight I lost per week, I probably wouldn't lose any. Okay, but since I'm trying to catch Teresa, I keep going. <laughs> and we all need accountability. And sadly, that's why a lot of people leave their local churches. Because they don't want to be known in such a way that someone might hold them accountable. That is one of the large reasons that people leave churches. Sadly, that's true. I mean, I mean, if you read the literature on this, if you hear from other pastors, 
it's because someone wanted to be known, but not known well enough. Too many times in the church, we've seen people who have sin in their lives, who when they're confronted with it, just leave. This, is, this, is, this goes on across the nation. Okay, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I'm just saying that this is true in all churches. Okay? But we need that. We need that accountability. We need someone to encourage us to do more. Encourage us to do more and encourage us when we can't do anything. When we're just done. When a loved one dies. Or when we lose our job. We need the body. We need the community. No one wants to live life alone. We can't do it. We need each other. And God has given us the gift of community in the local church. So the local church is a gift. It's a gift from God to get through life. How is this possible? Look at the rest of the verse there. Go to verse, beginning of verse 25 possible by being together, not neglecting to meet together. Church attendance in the Bible right there. I can't stir you up. I can't motivate you. I can't encourage you if I don't know you. Now, I might be able to guess, you know, if someone comes in, I might be able to guess that, you know, maybe they had a fight with their spouse at home or, or maybe they got laid off and I might be able to guess that and get it right because that happens a lot in our sinful, fallen world. But to really encourage someone, you have to really know them. And we don't, we can't know each other if we never see each other. I mean, that's just, you got to come to where the community is. And sadly, I can't make you come, or your friends can't make you come, or you can't make your spouse come, but you got to pray that God would soften your heart so that you do come and pray that your spouse's heart will be softened so that they will come and pray that God will soften your kids' heart so they will come. But you need to be here. You can't neglect getting together because then you can't be encouraged and you can't be held accountable. Why? Look at the end of verse 25. All the more as you see the day drawing near. There's coming a day where it will be the last day, where time's going to be done. And so we need to be motivated to love and good works. We need to encourage one another because there is a stop time. For those of us who do know Christ, at that time, we will be held accountable for the gifts we were given and how we use them. For those who don't know Christ, they will fall under judgment. And that needs to motivate us to be a living, breathing, active local church. A church that encourages, a church that motivates one another to action because we don't have all the time in the world. We don't have an infinite amount of time. There is a finite worth of time. And so we need to do this because the last day is coming. A couple things uh, that I've been, in doing research about the church, 
um, and about the local church, because I, I do want to spend a little time talking about that. I have some, some thoughts and some statistics from outside our Bible, but it's things that believers and non-believers have found true about belonging to a local church. So the first one's this. Uh, the first two have to do with, um, with church attendance and regular being together um, with a local church. The number one indicator of whether or not a student will continue, consider themselves a Christian post-college is regular church attendance before they went away to college. Now, for all of you who have taken statistics, I did say indicator and I said that on purpose. Coming to church regularly will not make someone a Christian. But I take it as more indicator of belief. Because if you really believe something, it will change how you live. It'll change your life patterns. And if you really believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he brought you into a new community of the people of God, it will change how you live and, and you will regularly be at church. Okay? And so, it is, it's, so it's an indicator of belief. But this is what they've found to be true, that they can guess the best whether someone will consider themselves a Christian post-college if they also say that they attended regularly before they went away to college. Number two, uh, William Bradford Wilcox, a leading sociologist at the University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, finds from his own analysis that, quote, active conservative Protestants who regularly attend church Okay, so that's the group, people who consider themselves active conservative Protestants and also who have regular attendance. I don't know how they define regular, but they say regular, um, are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. So what the research shows is that, um, you know, because you hear a lot about how the divorce rate for Christians and non-Christians is the same. Well, if you add in regular church attendance to the statistics, this is what you get, 35% less. Now again, it's not just coming to church, but again, as an indicator of how strongly you believe something. Okay, I hope, that, I hope that's clear. If you have questions about that, um, I can show you the website and the research uh, done with that. But, but, but again, it's an indicator. It helps us understand it. Um, the CEO of W.L. Gore and Associates, these are the people that make Gore-Tex, which is in like a lot of gloves, okay, uh, not a believer, said that they limit the size of their factories to 300 to 350 because there is a point at which you lose the advantage gained by being in the same place. Okay, so the idea here, and this is backed up by secular, this is a business, and they wanted to do business better and make more money, and that's what this research is. They showed that, that you need a manageable community. And apparently the number is 300 to 350. What's interesting is that this also matches up with church planting research, which says the best time to plant a church is between 300 to 350. Okay? So, so the idea of smallness is not necessarily bad. Sometimes we can get down on a church because it is small or smaller than maybe other churches in the area, but the research says you need some level of smallness. And they even see this in the research done on megachurches, which is my next point. This is from a guy named Ed Stetzer. 
And he's working with some of the biggest churches in the country about how to stay on mission. Okay, so going to some of the biggest places, one of the places he went to was a place called James River, which is actually where uh, Darcy went when she was in college in Springfield. And their average attendance is about 10,000 over a weekend. Okay, so this is somewhat of a big church. But, but he says this, becoming smaller is key to healthy growth. Pastors of the fastest growing churches also realize the need for relationships both in the church and with the community. Senior Pastor Mark McClelland of Willowbrook Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama, and this is the number 76th fastest growing church in the country. They, they keep track of these things. He notes, as we get bigger, we have to get smaller. The way they do that is through small biblical communities. Quote, small groups are the way we encourage relationships between our members, McClellan says. Willowbrook emphasizes intimacy with God, the big group, the small group, and individual accountability. So even a place like this, the number 76 fastest growing church in America, recognizes, and this and, and mega churches can often feel like the universal church. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to attend a place that is considered a mega church. Uh, the technical um, the way to define that is something over 2,000 is, is a mega church. Um, but even that, which can feel like the universal church, they recognize that there needs to be an element of localness within the larger body. So it's not that big is bad and small is good or small is bad and big is good, but rather that everybody needs a manageable community of friends and relationships in their church. And that's why the local church is such a gift because it allows us to motivate and encourage one another. It allows us to be in a close enough proximity to where I can actually know the person sitting next to me in the pew. Or if in a larger church, I can know the people in my small group or in a couple small groups. You see, so there needs to be both this big view of the church, recognizing that all believers in Jesus are a part of that, but there also needs to be a recognition that God has given us little, little nuclear families of the church that are all connected as an extended family, is the way I like to think. And so that our church right here is one of the families of the extended family of God. And so understanding that, that it's okay to invite someone to this church, that you're not necessarily showing favoritism. It's not, an, it's not a bad or unnice thing to do. Because what we see is that people come where they're invited. And they come where they know people are there. So, so if you have a friend that you'd like to invite to church, the best way that this can happen is if you know them and you ask them to come with you. That's the, most, that's the best way to do it. Um, and, that, and that God gives us these communities that are manageable so that we can know, know people and be known. A couple, couple of closing thoughts here. The Bible talks a great deal about the church. That we need to be shaped by what the Bible says about church. And that we need to have this view of the universal church made up of all believers at all times. 
Okay, um, when, we, when we close, after I'm done, we're going we're gonna to sing, uh, sing the Revelation song, which is the picture of Revelation 4 and 5, where everybody comes together to worship God. And we need to have that giant view of people from every tribe and nation coming together in heaven to worship God for eternity. We need that. But we also need a great understanding that God has given us smaller, manageable communities to be a part of so we can motivate and encourage one another. And love both. Love the universal church. Love your local church. And remember that the church is an active body. We're more than just people who like to get together. We have a mission. Now, we need to come together. We need to have actual relationships with people. But bottom line is we have a mission. We are an active group. And lastly, that one day, everyone in the true church will come together before God's throne to worship him for eternity. And so that unity, that perfect unity that we will have with God and with one another in heaven, we need to start that today in this community. We need to continue that today in this community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the church, that you have given us a people to belong to, an identity to cling to. God, that we would live out the identity as your people, as citizens of your country, as people in your family, as people who represent the presence of the living God on earth. Now, God, if, if there are some here who are not yet a part of that, who have not accepted Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day they join the family, that they join the community that you have called out. And God, that we would be an active local church, that we would seek every day to do works of love and good works and be a light into our community. And that we, would, that we would not be afraid to be known by others. That we would welcome accountability and motivation and encouragement. And that we would be a loving community that does that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.